Welcome to The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for people in their 30s and 40s. I'm your host, Caitlin O'Connor, naturopathic doctor with a practice in Denver, Colorado, supporting patients with their health and hormones throughout the many phases of life. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. So today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Dr. Jody Shevins. Jody is a naturopathic doctor who's been in practice since 1984, which is about 37 years now. She completed her pre-medical studies at Cornell University and then graduated from the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland. Currently, she practices in Longmont, Colorado, and her central area of practice expertise is homeopathy, although she's well-versed in a wide spectrum of both naturopathic and conventional modalities. And then one of the main principles of naturopathic medicine uh, that Jody, I think, excels at is in the concept of docere. So the word doctor comes from the Latin word docere, which means teacher. Um, the doctor must teach people how to understand their health concerns and then make effective therapeutic decisions, which is essentially sort of one of the main missions of this podcast. Dr. Shevins is a gifted teacher. She's been on the faculty of the Homeopathy School International, taught classes at Boulder College, Naropa University, and also offers numerous classes and seminars for public, especially around the safe use of homeopathy and natural medicines. I would highly recommend hopping on her website, which is jodykshevins.com. That will also be in the show notes to check out the classes she has available, specifically a recent class she did on menopause, as well as signing up for her newsletter. Uh, it's one of the few that I consistently read and enjoy every time I see it pop up in my inbox, which is not necessarily how I feel about the majority of things that pop into my inbox. I also wanted to point out how much I appreciated how clear you were in your bio about your pro-vaccination stance on your website, because I think that's often confused by folks. They see naturopathic medicine, and I think particularly homeopathy, as diametrically opposed to vaccines. So I love to see folks willing to take a stand and kind of clear that misconception up specifically. Uh, so let's just dive in because I'm really excited to talk with you as I always find our conversations to be really nuanced and interesting. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have to I find it interesting that you noticed I put my vaccination stance on my website because I did that about two weeks ago. I decided it was time to really be clear about that. Now, I think especially, but just in general, one of the areas that I think can be a barrier to sort of some of the benefits that naturopathic medicine can offer, offer mm -hmm. to public health. We sort of are, can get in our own way with when we're not really clear about that stance and making it sort of be known that naturopathic medicine as a profession is not in opposition. And in actuality, I find that it's sort of one of our great principles as far as prevention and do no harm. So it's something that's important to me. And I was happy to see you embrace that as well. I knew that was your personal beliefs, but I guess you're probably getting the same calls to the clinic that I've been getting about homeopathic vaccination and things like that. So I agree. So I start the interviews with the same three questions for all of my guests. And we were talking and you were letting me know, hey, perimenopause, you know, that menopausal transition happened for me about 17 years ago. So this might not be fresh <laughs> on your mind, but um, we'll, we'll talk about it anyway. So what was unexpected for you about perimenopause? Well, I think Mostly was that it happened earlier than I expected. 
I was 48 when my period stopped. And I think like many women, I was having what I call hyphenated word periods in your 40s. And they're different. And a lot of women, including myself, will notice a little warm spell around ovulation or before the period and think, what was that? Not really what you think of as a hot flash. And that must have started for me when I was about 44, maybe. And so I think the most unexpected thing for me was that I was done at 48. And I think that is, again, one of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast is even somebody who was, you know, a trained doctor was going through your transition and sort of like surprised by it as far as like when it showed up or how it showed up. So when we were discussing the podcast earlier, I was like, oh, it's about perimenopause. And you were like, I don't really know what that means. Like not you don't know it, like you're aware of the definition, but the way you talk about it is as this quote, periods in your 40s, unquote, which kind of covers all of the irregularities or new symptoms that that might pop up as people are, are moving through that. And I think for a lot of folks, as they enter their 40s, that's not really on their mind, right? They're not thinking, oh, menopause, menopause is something that happens to older people, mm-hmm. where we start to see even as early as 35, things start to to shift a little bit, especially around symptoms with menstrual irregularity or menstrual symptoms. So that's definitely a big a big focus of why we're doing this. Uh, and what did you enjoy about the process? Well, I was thinking about that question. I don't think I enjoyed anything about perimenopause, but I love <laughs> menopause. Perfect. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about that part, because I think that's another another message I really am trying to get through is like, yeah, this transitionary process might not be enjoyable and it might not be fun, but there's like this stability and like end point to it in which you have many, many more healthful, ideally like enjoyable years. So tell me about that specifically. Okay. Like what have you liked about it? Besides the functionality of if someone has PMS, they don't feel as well or that can really just stop and you become emotionally stable, freed from those hormonal tides. But I think it's also a, a matter of identity. Who are you really? Who am I really? Am I me in the first half of my menstrual cycle? Am I me in the second half of my cycle? Or am I me at ovulation? I think it gives us a chance to know ourselves as an adult who's not cycling, which we've never known. Yeah. And I think it gives gives me an opportunity to look at, well, who am I when I, it's not because I'm premenstrual, it's because I'm me and I had this experience of life for 50 years. And I think it gives uh, an opportunity to know myself and maybe to create myself out of the the tyranny of hormones. <laughs> so that's what I like about yeah. it. Yeah. It's sort of a a freedom from some of those internal cyclical changes that can be really impactful on just sort of the lenses that you're experiencing the world. It's like, oh, those lenses are no longer there and you can see things or experience things a little bit different. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the last of the three questions is what is something that you do now that your younger self would have judged you for or been surprised by? Well, I was thinking about that. I think I'm I'm a lot more conventional than I thought I, I would have been. I watch some television, and I am 
a fan of the brilliance of modern medicine and science. I was originally someone who was very, vaccinations seemed like a total blessing, saving the lives of many people. And then I got exposed to sort of an anti-vaccination bent, and then I've come full circle back to the importance of community health. And so I think mostly just, you know, that my life is more conventional than I expected as a back to the earth, growing my own food, uh, living off the land kind of uh, out of society for a little while person that I like being part of society very much. Yeah. And I that leads me to another question I wanted to ask you, because naturopathic medicine in general is a relatively small profession. But when you went to school in the early 80s, it was minuscule. It was pretty underground. So what was your journey into naturopathic medicine? How did you end up there? Well, it, it starts when I was 15, really, because I'd always been a person who I have that kind of personality. I think that people would want to talk about their problems with me. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll be some kind of counselor. And then I was in a biology class in uh, high school, and we learned about cells and the organelles in cells. And it was like my mind exploded, thinking that in every living thing, there were these little units called cells. And inside every cell was an organelle, these tinier little units. And it was going on all the time. And something happened in my mind. And I thought, I must study this. And I thought, oh, you should be a doctor. Because then you can study science and you can be a counselor and you can help people. And so I decided to be a pre-med, and I was a pre-med at Cornell. Pre-med track at Cornell University in the 70s was a, uh, I want to say, an extremely competitive as opposed to collaborative endeavor. And it was disappointing to me. And I, at the time, I had had my own health problems, and conventional medicine wasn't working. And, and so I took a book off the shelf about uh, nutrition. It was called The Supermarket Handbook. And it was the first thing I had ever learned about nutrition. It was about whole grains and eating vegetables and not eating sugar and things like that. And I started learning about nutrition. I changed my diet and I got better. And then, but I, st I finished my pre-med track. And when I graduated, I took a bike trip across the country. And at some point I landed in Eugene and I, I stopped at a clinic called the White Bird Clinic and they had naturopathic doctors. And I was like, what is this? And they knew conventional medical diagnostics, and they do they knew natural non harmful treatments. And I thought, ooh, very interesting. And I went back to Ithaca, and I lived on the land and in the country, growing our food and using herbs and learning all kinds of things. And I got restless, and I felt like, oh dear, I really want to use my science. What can I do? Maybe I should go to medical school. And then somebody handed me a brochure to National College in Portland. I thought, this is it. Look, they teach everything I want to learn. It's interesting because even though my journey towards naturopathic medicine happened later, it was very similar to what you talked about. Basically, I was always interested in science and I would go to the actual physical library before the internet and pull off the books on herbs and nutrition. But I knew that sort of a more conventional path wasn't for me because all of the doctors I knew and my family and my parents' friends all seemed a little bit like disillusioned with their uh, ability to help people or they didn't seem like they were really enjoying themselves very much. So I kind of pushed that to the side and was like, oh, I don't really, 
I don't know that that's that's the path for me. And then I had a yoga teacher who was like, oh, I see a naturopathic doctor. Here's, you know, the school they went to. And as soon as I there was Google by that point, so I didn't have a physical brochure, but I could Google it up. And I was like, oh, this is the thing that kind of incorporates all of my interests and all of my strengths. So it it felt very faded, like, oh, yeah, this is Mm -hmm. the thing I've always you know, wanted to do and didn't know it was a thing I could do. So I feel really lucky that like, oh, I found it. And, you know, I mean, you've been doing it for 37 years, so it must be working for you. (laughs) That's right. Uh, All right. Well, let's dive into our specific topic. So how do you approach a perimenopausal patient in your practice? What's your framework for helping people through this transition? I think the first and most important thing that I want to discern is what the woman wants. Because I have many women who come to see me before they have any symptoms, but they want to plan ahead. So that's a different group of women than women who come in and they're starting to have erratic cycles and hot flashes and mood changes or cognitive changes. I treat them similarly and differently. The the women who come in preventively I want to know what their values are. I want to know what do they want? What are their concerns? And there's sort of fears and desires. And then I have an agenda because there's certain things that that aren't as interesting uh, in terms of what the issues emotionally that women are thinking of, which is their bones and their cardiovascular symptoms and system and their mind. And uh, those are the Three things I have an agenda to make sure that we're taking care of. But the first thing is I want to know what are their fears and concerns because people are really different and their values are really different. And I don't want to assume I know what they need or want. If some women are going to come in and it's really about how they look, their skin and, and their weight and their shape, their vaginal function, it's all about the loss of youth or their sexuality or the the power they feel as a woman because of those things. And then there's issues around their value and their self-worth. And then, of course, there's women who don't want to be uncomfortable or they just want to make sure they're strong and healthy for the rest of their life or that they age well. Um, For the women who come in because they're having symptoms and they're uncomfortable, then that's almost that's where they're starting. They're uncomfortable, and so I want to really hear them about their symptoms, um, and I want to know their family history. What about the other women in their family? If they have sisters, mothers, aunts, I want to know the cancer history in their family. But I and I also want to know their their attitude towards aging, because whereas for men. There's a slow loss of physical capacity and bone density. And um, women have this moment in time where they've been buoyed up by their hormones. And then around perimenopause and menopause, there's a precipitous drop in hormones that's not gradual. And it's dramatic. And I think what comes up for most women is a hard look at our mortality that no matter how well we take care of ourselves, it comes to an end. And that what does it mean to live with in physical decline for so many people? It's so threatening. 
it's so frightening to think about a loss of function and comfort or to look at decay. And because we have this precipitous drop at menopause, and then it gets more gradual again, um, it's, it, I think that's the, the real core issue for so many people is looking at decline and death, but really you might live a long time. And so what do you want to do with it? You know, and, and so that's, that's where I start. One of the things that I see in my clinic all the time is people come in late 30s, early 40s. They have, you know, symptoms that are pretty consistent with like, hey, you've got one foot on the bridge. Like I kind of talk about it as this, you know, bridge from reproductive years to post-reproductive years. And I'm like, you're not on the end of the bridge. You're not post-reproductive. But, you know, you got a, a toe on the bridge. We're crossing the bridge right now. So, like, let's talk about that. And the looks of utter fear and just upset like women are very upset to face that sort of transition so i think talking through that and figuring out what people's values are and addressing those needs versus saying well here's what you have to do you have to go on bioidentical hormones to preserve your youth or you can't go on hormones because that means you're fighting nature or you have to do this like my goal for my patients and for sort of people across the world is to be able to really define how they want this transition to look, to feel, how they want to approach it, and then sort of have an understanding of what tools are available to support that. I, I think like many of our transitions are more cultural and personalized versus like a right way or a wrong way. Like I don't think that there's a right way to do perimenopause or a wrong way. Um, certainly we want it to be the safe way, but there's a lot of wiggle room in there. So sort of listening to what people want, what their concerns are, and then sort of saying, here's the menu of things that we could do. Like, let's pick let's pick from the menu. Exactly. Uh, so one thing that we talked about prior to recording was your concept of the reckoning. And I think we were starting to get into that. So tell me about, you know, the reckoning that people face at this time of life. You bet. And that is exactly what I call it. I call it a reckoning because we get to a certain age in life and there are some things you can't do anymore. You can't redo how you parented your children. You can't have some other ones. You can't have not gone to that school or had that job or done that relationship. Or There are things that they're done and some of those are fabulous and some of them are grievous and our heart breaks over them. And I think we have to maybe even grieve some things like a death and make peace with it and find a way to say, well, that worked, that didn't, and this is what I want going forward. And to make peace with what didn't work so that we can be extremely creative with what's in front of us. In Confucian terms, that these middle years of parenting and working, these busy, busy years, they're the householder time of life. And as that starts to end, we have what would hopefully be a wisdom time of life. When we have something where we're not quite as busy and we have something to give to society and to the people younger than us that's valuable from our experience, or even just to develop other parts of ourselves in the, the wisdom years. And so I think it's really important to go forward, to take an inventory, to take stock, to look hard at it and make peace with it so that we can go forward. 
it's a time of transition. It's not an end. Right. And I think in a lot of people, they have this concept of like, well, it's over now. That was my life. Now I'm just, you know, going to dry up in the corner. And that's all there there was to it. Whereas I think grabbing onto that like transitionary potential and then being creative and generative with it and being like, how do I want to spend the rest of this life, which, you know, if all goes well, is, is a good chunk of our total lifespan. Um, so I love that idea of reframing it, of not as an ending, but a jumping off point as far as being able to sort of take stock, take inventory and say, all right, what do I want to do differently? And now that I am potentially less busy with some of the earlier projects of my life, like where do I want to go now? A really important thing to me is cross-cultural values. In that, uh, mm-hmm. something I've I've looked into a lot is menopause different in different cultures. There are variations in what symptoms women get in what cultures: frozen shoulders or vaginal dryness or weight gain. But the women who do the best are the women who live in cultures where they're valued for having lived a long time and for being an elder that there's the least menopausal trouble, at least it's talked about the least, in cultures where an older woman is a very valued person in the community. And I think that's the fundamental problem in our culture, besides the physical health of menopause, is that we don't value older women. I think it's a super big deal. And I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from and where a lot of the fear can be valid. Like I don't want to discount people's fear around the transition because there's like very real ageism in our culture and there's very real, you know, valuing in how youth looks and how youth acts. And yeah, you are kind of transitioning to a phase of life where there is loss of privilege and loss of access. And that is legitimately scary. And it's a cultural issue. It's not something you're doing wrong, right? like a lot of things in my practice, I'm like, this isn't actually anything you're doing wrong. You're just kind of in a, for lack of a better word, like a fucked up cultural paradigm that doesn't value (laughs) this really important part of life. So you're not the problem. The paradigm is the problem, but you still have to live in it, right? So one of the things that I think can be helpful is even if you can't create a macro culture that's valuing and appreciating of where you are in your process, creating like a microculture as far as like creating this little bubble for yourself where you're really intentional about what media messages do you bring in? Can you get a group of uh, friends that you can appreciate and support each other and be positive about this process together and just create this little coven of support I think that those relationships become really important because you're not going to necessarily get that support from the external structure. I personally agree with you, but I also feel like when I talk to women and what's really important to them is that they stay looking young and they're going to get plastic surgery and they're going to do high-tech chemical interventive treatments to look younger I I also want to take care of them and and I don't want to diss them for oh, it. Yeah. You know, like yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like they might want to read the beauty magazines and figure out how to stay what they think is, you know, gorgeous for them and right. sexually potent in their presentation and I I for me in in terms of being open to what 
their values are, that is, I have space for them as well. You know? I agree. And maybe yeah. I didn't make that clear enough. I just had a conversation with a woman in my practice the other day who is just like, I am terrified of aging. I don't want my looks to change at all. I don't want my body to change at all. And I'm like, that's valid. That's great. We can explore the why of that. But also like that requires a different set of skills than what I have. That, there are <laughs> other right. things on the table. <laughs> like, I don't have the herbal medicine that's going to keep you looking young. Like the things that are on the table are plastic surgery, injectable, you know, and all of those are also okay. Like I feel like people 100% have the authority and can have their body look any way they want their body to look and sort of pick, again, pick from that menu. Right. And certainly those um, plastic surgery and all of the various things, like they're on the menu. And I don't think that right. we should or need to judge them as like more natural or less natural or again the right or wrong way to do it but my hope would be they were made from like a yes this is how I personally feel the best and I'm doing it from a place of like wanting to look good and then celebrating how I look right and not as deep in the fear it, it circles back again to this very deep fear of death and fear of yeah. getting old and and we have to make peace with it because it's the privilege we get if we don't die young. Yes. And I think it's a gift and it's a privilege. And if we're not sick or infirm or in too much pain, then it is important to philosophically sort through what does it mean to age and how do you age powerfully and beautifully and comfortably. Uh, which leads me to talking a little bit about mission statements. So one of the things we spoke about was that you have your patients create a mission statement around this transition. And then that mission statement is one of the things that helps inform the treatment plan. So tell me a little bit more about how you walk people through that process. Um, I start by asking them those questions. What, how are you now? What are you afraid of? What are you concerned about? What do you want? Whatever that is. And it might be they want to live long, but they want to feel well. One person said, we have a lifespan, but we have a health, a health span that they might want to increase their health span. Or maybe it's they don't want to gain weight. Or maybe it's all about their health and strength and vitality. They want to still run marathons. I want to walk them through getting clear about what they want and why they want it. Many people will say, well, I want to, I want to see my children grow up. I want to see my grandchildren. I want to be able to be an active grandparent. And I just gently question them to search, well, what matters the most? And then look at what is possible in terms of what they want. And how do we go about creating that given their personality, their resources, where they live, their family history, and then see what we can put together to make it work. And then that sort of family history and some of those predetermined potential risk factors kind of bring us to those three areas that you think are really important to make sure we're sort of actively managing as folks are making that transition, the brain health, bone health, and cardiovascular health. So that's a topic in and of itself, but what are sort of the, the highlights of those areas that you want to make sure 
every person is addressing as they are sort of in their later stage, perimenopause, early menopausal years to make sure that they're doing what they can to proactively impact those areas of health? Thank you. That's a really great question. I think because those are the things that are suddenly affected by the rapid drop in uh, the sex hormones and estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, that because you've been going along at a certain level and then there's a precipitous drop and then it evens out again at a lower level afterwards or slowly declines after that. It's in the midst of that drop that we can lose bone density and change the um, vitality and health and um, resilience of our, our heart and blood vessels and lipids and um, and then our bones. Estrogen keeps calcium in our bones. And so one of the things on my agenda, the, the single thing that has the biggest impact in my mind on those on cardiovascular and bone, and then of course, cognitive function, but that's a little more complicated, is exercise. That the single, I think the single most important thing that positively impacts every aspect of perimenopause is, is uh, besides, uh, I want to say, a sense of purpose and connection, right. is exercise. That staying physically active, maybe getting more active, finding a way to move and use your heart and to whatever capacity someone is capable, I, I'm even hesitant to call it exercise because some people don't like to exercise, but they like to dance or they like to do yard work or they like to clean where they go up and down the stairs really quick. Like people need to move and they need, I think, intervals of intensity. And so it is my agenda to figure out how to get people committed to moving to get strangely compulsive about it, not in an unhealthy way, but the way that they might think, well, I brush my teeth every day. Even if you're too busy, even if you worked all day, even if winter came and the days were short, and even if we had a pandemic and it was smoky outside, like even if, even if, even if, because it's never going to get more convenient. The exercise is my first intervention. And like I said, um, the primary important factor of aging is a sense of purpose and connection and then physical activity. Yeah. And I 100% agree. I am always looking to engage people in more movement. And the problem is it's one of the hardest habits for people to get, right? Like by the time you get to the middle of your life, you kind of have the folks that we might put in the category of like exercisers. They, ha they love it. They have a routine. It's a part of who they are. And then you have the folks who are like, I am not exercisers. Like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to go to a class. How do you engage those folks? Because I agree. I personally don't think it's possible to be sort of expressing your truest health potential if regular movement is not a part of your habit. And it's the habit that I have the hardest time engaging my patients with. I talk about it all the time. I make suggestions. And I would say, you know, people will take a pill, they'll change their diet. And for some folks, that movement piece is just the hardest, the hardest thing to acquire. So mm -hmm. any, yeah. any tips for that? Well, as a practitioner, first, I try to have a very clear conversation. 
because sometimes people will come to me and they they say, I don't want to take any medications. I don't want to take any statins. I don't want to take a blood pressure medication. I don't want to take a hormone, but I also don't want to change my diet and I don't want to exercise, (laughs) but I want to feel well. And, and I, and then, so what I would like to do is have a very respectful conversation where unless they have some pretty fancy genes, which some people do where they they will live yeah. long and feel fine without doing those things. But unless they have those genetics, they're not going to get what they want. And let's just be clear. No, you don't have to exercise. And no, you don't have to eat well. You can do whatever you want, but you might not get what you want. So, and that's yeah. fine if it's fine with you. So I start with, let's just be real about what you want. And if it's possible in consensual reality. And that's my starting place. If someone's like, well, there's no way I can't exercise. And I, I have to eat these fatty foods and my cholesterol is, you know, 300. I just try and say, well, okay, I hear that you don't have to, but this is what's going to happen. Right. And so first we have a reality check. And then if they, they really, for whatever reason, they're not an exerciser and, um, they are getting plaque in their blood vessels, then we might say, well, if you don't want to exercise and you don't feel like you can change your diet and you do want to live a long time, you might want to consider the medications because you'll live a longer, healthier life if you do. So I I try and finesse it to meet what they can do, not in a guilt trip shaming kind of way, but like, let's just be real. You know, you work two jobs, you have four kids, you don't have money. What are you going to do? Um, Then I try and do something small. Then I say, well, what can you do? Can you do two minutes of exercise a day? Mm-hmm. Can you do five minutes? Can you do five minutes twice a day? And I try and find something they can and will do that will give them more time. Because if they're more awake because they took the walk or they went up and down the stairs four times or they walked around the block once or they, whatever, I try and start small, but pick a Pick a goal they could commit to, even if it looks ridiculously small. I sometimes think folks come to naturopathic medicine looking for the magic wand, which is like, I don't want to take medications, but I also don't want to change my habits, but I don't really want to take supplements, but I do want a different outcome. And sometimes you have to have those conversations like, we don't have, you know, the magic wand. We have great tools, but in my mind, you get 75 to 85% of your benefit by sort of the boring things that you have to do every day. Like, how are you moving? What are you eating? How are you sleeping? What is your stress like? How connected are you to that sense of purpose? And then like, yeah, we have some magic in our in our toolkit that can definitely make an impact, but we can't outmaneuver some of like the basic boring things. And that segues into the hormone conversation. Yeah. Because women who do hormone replacement therapy will at the very least postpone many menopausal symptoms. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's usually the segue. Are you, are you a person who's going to take hormone replacement or not? Because that decision should be made close to menopause. The, the worst side effects yes. come if you wait till after menopause. I had someone in my office the other day 82 years old, saw a doctor who wanted her to start on estrogen. And I have to say, I was 
more than a little distress. Yeah, you're like, hmm. <laughs> and because that's where we have the most negative side effects with hormone replacement. And hormone replacement, the main risks, and they're not risks for everyone, are blood clots and cancer. And so it's important to look through the, the family history and someone's personal history to know if that's even a safe treatment on the table. But it's much easier for a lot of women to just take exogenous hormones. Those are hormones you take, not the ones you make in your body. And and at the very least, postpone their symptoms. Well, and I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about even at the beginning of the episode is as a early idealistic practitioner, I was sort of less inclined to recommend hormone replacement therapy. And I also think, you know, things were different in the state of the research back then. But I have evolved a lot on that topic specifically and being like, that's definitely on the menu, especially since we see so many women throughout their 40s and early 50s, you know, still having kids who are maybe disrupting their sleep, working at the same time. I'm like, hey, guess what? There's this tool and it's safe and effective and it can really help with some of those symptom management, especially when those lifestyle factors, you know, are not as able to be optimized. I love I love to keep that on the table and I don't think there's anything like I said more or less natural about using hormone replacement therapy in a safe way and again having that conversation early on in that transition to be like okay, when would we bring this in? What are the symptoms it's most helpful for? How long will you be on it? When do we want to start and versus just showing up in a office kind of once things have already started to unravel and not necessarily like knowing what your options are or being able to sort of think about them and plan for them. So I like that part. And speaking of tools, in addition to sort of exercise, hormone replacement therapy, what are the tools that you found to be the most effective in your practice for sort of managing the symptoms that come along with this transition? Something I've discovered in the last two years is a product called Relizen. R-E-L-I-Z-E-N, and it's sold online, and it's a, a, a flower pollen extract, and I have seen the best results using the Relizin more than with the cohosh or the soy products or sage or uh, any of the other uh, room, raponica. There's a lot of good ones out there, but the Relizin has been the most dramatic thing I've come across in years. And specifically uh, for hot flashes, sleep disturbances, is that the symptom picture that that seems to be most helpful with? It's sort of in that order. Hot flashes keep women from sleeping. And then if you're not sleeping, well, then everything else, mood and immunity and uh, functionality can really suffer. So, yes. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Yeah. You told me about that the other day when we were chatting. I haven't had a chance to... um, try it out yet, but I'm excited. And just FYI, neither Jody or I know the people who make Relizin or make money if you go no. buy it. So feel free to experiment at your leisure per your individual uh, safety parameters. Um, and then really quickly, even though this is a broad topic, but I think you're a good person to address this. How do you describe homeopathy to people? Like when people say, yes, I would like, you know, when you're saying, okay, I use homeopathy, I have the hardest time describing it in a way that doesn't 
sound super woo woo or weird or unclear. I just can't figure out my definition. So yeah, my guess is you have a good definition and I would love to hear it. <laughs> well, I often do start with that homeopathy is a very strange and wonderful thing and far and away the wooiest <laughs> thing I do as someone who loves yeah. chemistry and medicine. But um, the way I understand how homeopathic medicines work is they are a uh, a very specific really irritant to our systems on an energetic level that wakes up our ability to heal ourselves in a way that we've been stagnant. So normally you get a cut, it heals. Normally um, you are tired, you sleep. Normally something's off in your digestion and your body should make it better. Um, Or we have problems in life and we figure them out. But sometimes we don't respond. We don't heal. We get stuck. And homeopathic medicines are meant to stimulate our ability to self-regulate, to heal physically, mentally, emotionally, to stimulate a response so that we start to get better. I think that's the simplest way I can say it. And the classical homeopathy, which is what I do, the original form of homeopathy, we're looking for one specific homeopathic medicine that's a perfect fit for a person's imbalance. And I think of it like tuning an instrument, that you find just the right way to turn the peg so that the note plays right. And then you don't keep tuning it. You say, okay, now let it play. Let the instrument play the music. And we're the instrument in our life and our health is the music. And we only retune it when we need to, which might be twice a day or once every couple of years or it's variable. So we use these gentle stimulants, which if we don't overuse them can be used very safely and um, to get our own body and mind going again so that we can heal. Perfect. I love it. It's it's definitely one of those concepts that can be hard to explain clearly to folks. And I think you did a really good job with that. And again, I would advise folks who are interested in learning more about homeopathy to go check out your website and the classes available because I think you do a great job at pairing some of that like wonderful, strange, energetic, homeopathic vibes in the context of a very practical and pragmatic approach. So I love how you blend those. I've taken uh, some of your classes myself um, just as far as like honing up on my homeopathic remedies to have for first aid things, for uh, cold and flu. So for folks who are listening who are like, oh, that sounded, you know, interesting. That that piqued my interest. Um, you can certainly check out Dr. Jody's website and some of her classes and or, you know, take a look at working with a dedicated uh, trained homeopathic doctor in your area. Uh, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. What is one message that you wish sort of all perimenopausal people could hear? Well, I'll start by that. I think of this hormonal developmental transition from being reproductive and lunar in our cycles to not cycling anymore is, I think for most women, something like a 10-year arc from when we the metronome of 
are menses. And as we get into what we conventionally call perimenopause, that lunar metronome, it stops being so accurate and so connected. And many women for quite a few years after their periods stop are still cycling. And they may feel PMS, or sometimes I call it permanent PMS, or they'll feel anxious or have sleep issues or constipated or moody, whatever used to come for them before their periods or after ovulation. And they'll feel it kind of acyclically after their periods stop. And so I include those years after the period stop till really the, the tidal cyclical changes have stopped. And that's roughly a decade for a lot of women. And I think it's good to know that getting into it. So it's not like, oh, well, one day you're just having big periods and hormones, and then the next day you have some hot flashes, and then the next day you're done. It's really a, a long arc that's much more for most women, a continuum of change that that uh, goes from somewhere in your late to mid to late 40s to your somewhere between your 50s, even and 60. Yeah. Menopause and the arc of perimenopause, it's a pivot point in our life. And it's a moment where we can really cultivate who we want to be. It also shifts our agency a little bit to something that's happening to us, to a process that we're like engaged in. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's enjoyable or it's fun. Like part of growth and grief and transition includes discomfort. It includes having to make hard decisions. It includes crying and being sad. Like it doesn't, I don't ever want to paint this as, you know, positive vibes only. Like, you know, it has to be good and it has to be this or that. But the fact that it's a process that you can engage in and it represents, you know, again, as you said, this ability to pivot and create, I think that is such important messaging to sort of counter this passive week, like, okay, it happens to you and then it's over and then your life's over and then like too bad, so sad, you're not, you know, a valued member of society anymore. I think a word that really comes up for me as you're speaking is that it's a portal. You know, yeah. and that, you know, in the way birth is uncomfortable, that this is a kind of birth too, that it's a portal to another platform in life and maybe thinking of it in that way. You can be born into something more and something of your own creation. Love it. I think that is a fabulous sentiment to wrap up on. Anything else you want to add? Anything else on your mind? Any other tidbits that you'd love to share with us? Uh, there's just so many ways to take care of ourselves that fit you, who you are in your circumstances. I love that you called it, a, you know, like it's a privilege to be alive, to be at this moment. I think we should find ways to get the support we need, the community we need to take it. And I think community is important. It's not a portal to enter alone. We, we should do yes. it in community. I want to thank you so much. I just admire you so much as a doctor and as a community member. And just, I love talking to you. We could talk for hours and hours and hours about many, many different topics. But for now, I think we'll wrap this segment up. And again, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your expertise. It was a pleasure speaking with you, as always. Thank you. It was my pleasure, too. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for folks in their 30s and 40s. I'm Dr. Caitlin O'Connor, and our executive producer and audio engineer is Janice Matsko of Empowerment Ventures, theme song created by Lady Gang Music from Denver, Colorado. You can check out show notes and find and share episodes at drcaitlin.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can sign up for my newsletter. This podcast is a labor of love, and if you like it, please tell your friends and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Now for the legally appropriate disclaimers. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. This does not constitute the practice of medicine, and this podcast does not give medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship has been formed. Listeners should not delay or disregard medical advice for any condition they have, and if you aren't getting good care, advocate for yourself, explore your options, and try the best you can. Until next time, I love you, and you're doing a great job.